Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, was Boris bad for business? We'll be finding out if Britain's current political turmoil has discredited the UK on the international stage. Out with the old and in with the new, we now know that Britain will have a new Prime Minister by September the 6th. But whoever takes over following the resignation of Boris Johnson, what's going to be on their to-do list? The economy has to be top. This year, inflation has already hit a 40-year high and the economy has been shrinking. The UK is widely tipped to experience a technical recession later this year. The Bank of England forecasts a huge downturn between October and December with a contraction of almost 1%. That all affects the cost of living. The new PM will face the UK's largest drop in real income since the 1950s. Soaring food and energy prices are further deepening the crisis. Economists expect the next person in charge will need to do yet more to help households and save the struggling economy. And, of course, there's also the continuing fallout over Brexit, and especially what's going to happen with regards to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Boris was apparently happy to break European law to get what he wanted. Will his successor feel the same? Remember, one of the pitches for Brexit was being able to trade freely with the rest of the world. But since Britain left the European Union, the number of UK-EU trading relationships has seen a steep decline due to regulatory red tape. The UK government's spending watchdog has said changes from Brexit may have been a factor in the UK lagging behind all other G7 economies in its post-pandemic recovery. One legacy the outgoing British Prime Minister will leave behind is leading Britain's response to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Britain's helping hand led to Ukrainians hailing Boris as a hero, even naming a street after him in a small town on the outskirts of Odessa. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky will be hoping this solidarity continues once the new leader steps in. Joining me now to consider Britain's future is Professor Amelia Hadfield, Dean International and Head of the Politics Department at the University of Surrey, and political economist and best-selling author Will Hutton, thanks both of you for, for coming on the programme. Now, Amelia, if I can start with you first of all. The last few weeks in Westminster have been like a soap opera, a circus. Do, do you think this makes Britain look ridiculous in the eyes of the rest of the world? I'd go for a Wagnerian epic, actually, because it seems to have gone on so long and it's got so many sort of torrid elements. Yes and no. I mean, every every nation state uh, has its, its domestic uh, upheavals. Um, the way in which it has sort of unfolded probably has a higher degree of, of, of drama um, than possibly in some other countries. But if you, if you look to uh, Europe, you know, we've had a massive turnover in terms of types and shifts of government in Italy and France and Germany. So I think the the sort of the churn itself uh, isn't isn't particularly remarkable. I think what's been remarkable is the enormous amount of, of, of press that it's had, the high drama associated with a very deeply personalized type of politics. Uh, politics that we have here in the UK. Um, and of course, going from knowing who the Prime Minister is to obviously a competition where, um, at least up until perhaps the last couple of days, it still feels really very wide open. And politics doesn't really deal well when there's 
nebulous elements. So the idea of not knowing at this point who the next uh, um, leader is going to be, the sort of policy direction, the impact that's going to have in terms of uh, strategy for Britain uh, in the next five to 10 years, that to some degree uh, feels a little bit uh, like a fluctuation at this point, but absolutely you know, thrilling, I think, for people watching it and particularly political scientists. So very much the politics of personality more than in politics of parties. Well, I wonder if that's something that, that you agree with. I mean, do you think that a change of leadership is, is going to be enough to get Britain back on track at home and abroad? Well, I rather agree with Amelia in that the um, churn and political drama is say, not unique to the UK. Uh, that said, um, I think that the um, I think two things are kind of worth pointing out. One is, is that um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was a big beast and it's become evident as you see the, the people vying to be his successor as Prime Minister that the degree of charisma that Johnson had was exceptional. I would say that without it, Britain would not have left the European Union. And now, and I regard the European Union, you know, I, re I regard that decision as, as a baleful one and a bad one and very hard to make work successfully. And I think what people are going to be looking at internationally is that Britain's landed itself with this kind of decision to leave the European Union. Um, trying to make it work is going to be very difficult. And the amount of political talent at the Tory party's disposal to make it work is kind of not great. Um, and, they, and once you get into a kind of world, and one of the reasons why Johnson lost the premiership was interesting, not so much over policy, but actually over his trustworthiness and over um, people felt that he was um, a liar. And it's interesting that none of the leadership candidates would actually have him back in their cabinet because he is so toxic. And it was that toxicity that actually um, cost him um, his, his job. Um, and that toxicity, of course, is cast over Brexit now. So I think what people will be wondering um, internationally is um, as the Brits try to make this um, hapless decision work and the architect of it is out of the frame, is it possible? And actually what kind of missteps will take place before you get uh, a government that actually tries to make Brexit, Brexit work, not by de-aligning from the European Union, but actually trying to build bridges to it, but on the basis of being kind of independent state, but part of the kind of European family of states. And there's no, you know, I mean, you can't deny geography. So um, yes, it was wonderful theatre. Yes, it's kind of preoccupying. Um, is it unusual in Europe? No. The outcome, though, is going to be very important for Britain's relationships with the rest of the world. You talked a lot about Brexit there and the UK leaving the European Union. So, Emilia, let's stick with that um, for now, because one of the biggest things that's going to be in the new Prime Minister's inbox it, it is going to be dealing with the continued fallout from Brexit, and particularly the, the issue of the, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, what do you expect to see happen there? Well, I, I certainly agree that it is an opportunity to, to press the reset button, and I really uh, very deeply hope uh, that the sort of uh, trends or path dependency, if you like, that, that have emerged in the past couple of years are not replicated. Uh, you know, despite what Johnson has said, you know, Brexit simply isn't done. It's that's such a throwaway phrase. It's almost a fridge magnet. Um, there are an enormous number of problems that still exist. Um, and we can we can certainly talk about the way in which Britain wants to navigate its 
you know, itself on the high seas, if you like, from anything from climate change to trade. But certainly, the man, the, the most parlous of, of these issues um, is the, the, you know, the, the UK's supposed new plan to to re-engage with with Northern Ireland. Um, and as 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 uh, you know, we all know, um, the UK wants to make and has already made a variety of changes under the the Brexit deal. Certain goods, as you remember, have to be checked uh, when they enter uh, Northern Ireland from Great Britain. That's the current process. The goods are checked at various ports uh, in Northern Ireland on arrival, and then they can be moved into the Republic of Ireland once once checked that has thrown up a whole series of problems physical problems material problems logistical issues um, and it has very sadly uh, promoted a lot of division and divisiveness that have themselves pushed out uh, more uh, sectarian um, clashes some some violence even as we saw last year um, so the UK's suggestion is this is simply not good enough and they, they need a new plan uh, I think my, my worry is that there has simply not been enough engagement with Brussels because um, Brussels has come up with a number of very good suggestions, at least in, in, in my part. Um, it's not necessarily watering down, but there are changes and amendments that make what is a very logistically tight, real bottleneck of an issue there, uh, more doable, more workable. Uh, but the, the UK has, I think, been fairly deaf to some of these overtures at this point and have gone ahead with a sort of green light, red light or green lane, red line approach uh, in terms of splitting goods into two different lanes. Um, so goods uh, destined only, only for Northern Ireland itself go into what they call the green lane, uh, and that's not supposed to be checked. Uh, but everything else, goods are destined to go to Ireland and then back, well, within the European mm -hmm. Union, possibly back to mainland Europe, uh, that goes to the red line and those checks are, are carried out for for the UK, um, that perspective seems to make the difference, but that that misalignment or, or parallelism, if you like, has, has been rejected uh, by Brussels. So even even sort of logistical issues like that uh, remain um, all to play for. Beyond that, you've got tax rules uh, associated with this. And of course, the very real issue um, that the protocol itself uh, still stands hugely opposed by a whole range of unionist parties, um, arguing that, that it places an effective border across the Irish Sea. So uh, whether it's the, the macro issue of the protocol or the sort of micro issue of how you deal with these lanes, um, the incoming British Prime Minister is going to have to take a good hard look, not just at what that problem is, but the, the sort of toxic divisiveness in terms of the negotiation attitude that preceded it and really try to get over that um, and press that reset button and try much, much harder next time. Now that even the opposition leader, Keir Starmer, has said that Brexit is irreversible, uh, what could a future British Prime Minister do? What, what, what do you see the role of the UK becoming and the relationship, how the relationship between the UK and the Europe is going to develop? Well, one thing, there's an iron rule in politics um, that whenever any politician of right or left in any state says something is irreversible or here for a thousand years or whatever the grandio those grandiloquent claims, they're always disproved wrong. And I don't think for a minute that um, that's a position that will hold in Britain. And the, the big debate over the next kind of few years is actually to what extent does the Britain allow its regulatory structures and its foreign defence policy to kind of diverge from um, its partners in Europe, or to what extent does it try to make common cause? And um, if it's defence and foreign policy, it's absolutely obvious um, that you have to make common cause um, given what's happening in the Ukraine. And actually, in a way, Johnson championing the uh, Sweden and Finland joining NATO was quite interesting kind of pro-European move by him. And Ben Wallace, the uh, Defence Secretary in Britain, who I, ex I expect will stay in post, 
and the next British government will actually carry on with that. And so you then have this economic question. And actually, uh, I, I personally think that actually um, uh, what has to happen, and it'll be building block by building block, um, whether it be um, rock and roll bands touring Europe, whether it be mutual recognition of um, professional qualifications, whether it be um, in uh, highly complicated knowledge-based industries like aerospace or, or pharmaceuticals, where actually if British companies want to export into the European markets, they're going to have to comply with European regulations. There's going to be a succession of um, bespoke deals that uh, will ultimately become the basis for some kind of association agreement with the European Union. Uh, and that may then become a platform for um, rejoining the single market and the customs union. But Keir Starmer does not want to open that one up before 2024. Because if you talk to leading um, uh, 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 Labour politicians, what they will say is you couldn't make that commitment um, even to rejoin the single market and customs union without making an attendant promise to have a referendum on it. And actually, you, they don't want to go into the next election um, with the words referendum on Europe in their manifesto, even on just rejoining the single market and the customs union. So it's interesting you're talking there about bespoke deals happening, but maybe a, a, um, a sliding scale in terms of the, the time frame. Emilia, let me bring you in on this because trade deals... Uh, are still very much up for grabs in, in, in the post-Brexit uh, world. Some have been signed or some, uh, um, I suppose they're not actual trade deals, they're memorandums of agreement, maybe watered down. But, you know, where should the next Prime Minister be, be looking for, for the next deal? Free trade agreements are sort of the, the gold standard to some extent um, in terms of how you how you do foreign policy abroad. Uh, its its counterpart, of course, is security and defense. Um, but one of the interesting uh, methods by which Britain has attempted to um, assert that it's making a success of Brexit in the first couple of years following Brexit and, and now in the sort of more uh, post-Brexit era definitively is, of course, through FTAs. Um, so every time a sort of free trade agreement is returned to the department um, or just simply sort of returned to the UK as a whole, it's, it's deemed to be a, a triumph. And I, I suppose to some extent, I want to be a little careful here because it is really quality versus quantity. You can have an absolute proliferation of free trade agreements uh, with countries with whom you have, you know, sort of 0.01% in terms of GDP with trade. Um, so they look good because you get a flag, uh, but in trade terms, actually, materially, they don't, they don't do very much. Um, the UK has signed uh, a number of trade agreements of course, since leaving uh, the European Union. It's a bit of a sort of happy families, if you like. Um, I think the ones that really made um, uh, their mark is uh, the agreement with Australia that was signed in December 2021. Uh, and then earlier this year, uh, one with New Zealand. Uh, they're not yet enforced. They do, do take a long time. They take a long time to put together to begin with and, and then even longer, I think, to, to, to finally ratify and put into force. And a more interesting one, I think, is a digital trade agreement uh, with Singapore signed in uh, February of this year. That has entered into force. That was that was last month. So the UK has a sort of menu, if you like, um, of ones that have been achieved and they have to um, it's a bit of a lag time, I think, between signing one and seeing the impact it actually has in terms of trade and industry. Um, and then, of course, the sort of forward-looking plan of who else do we want to engage with, who else do we want to sign with. Um, so the UK government, of course, has started negotiations for various trade agreements with, with countries. Um, I'm, I'm interested, I think, in the division between um, doing country-to-country -country ones, so, so bilateral ones, perhaps with Canada, for example, or India. 
negotiations for India, for example, started earlier this year. And the type of trade, quite frankly, that we've come out of, and that's a regional trade agreement, um, something that is, is, is club-based, if you like. So having come out of the European Union, um, the, the UK obviously has to do either rollover agreements and try to sort of get them back in by the, by, by the back door or cultivate new bilats. But my sense is that sort of the way of the future for, for trade is because it's so interlocking and it, 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 it hinges on interdependencies um, and, and very critical supply chains, it makes a lot more more sense to do these in a very comprehensive and regional way. So the one that I'm really looking out for is the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that's that's pretty enormous. It's a trade agreement between uh, 11 countries across the Trans-Pacific area, but also involving folk like uh, uh, Canada, Chile, Japan, etc. Um, the UK applied to join this in February 2021, uh, and negotiations started last week, or last uh, last year. Uh, the government wants to try to conclude this by the end of the year. Um, I. <laughs> I think it's both a good thing and also kind of highly ironic that uh, that uh, the UK decided uh, largely on the basis, I think, of, of trade as well as many other things to, to come out of the European Union, um, only to look, you know, really quite assiduously at being able to go back uh, into a regional trade agreement with a whole host of areas and countries. And again, it, it might be very helpful, but the the idea of, of trade is it has to land at home and it has to generate decent partners abroad. Um, so this one, I think, has to tick enough boxes in terms of GDP to actually make a very real difference. And quite frankly, act as a catalyst to pull Britain out of what's what's clearly a sort of in, incoming recession, much of which is going to be driven by industrial output. So much to talk about, but let's take a short break now. Stay with us because still to come here on the agenda, could a new prime minister mean a new approach to the conflict in Ukraine? Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Welcome back to the agenda. Still with me are Professor Amelia Hadfield, Dean International and Head of the Politics Department at the University of Surrey, and political economist and best-selling author Will Hutton. We've talked about a couple of our words, referendum, recession, so let's stick with that one. Um, Will, when it comes to the economy, it's certainly going to be top priority for the government. <laughs> Cost of living is soaring, fuel prices are sky high, energy bills are going to go up while wages are, are pretty much going nowhere. The, the UK needs cheaper homes, it needs lower commercial rents, tax reform. The economy is something the new Prime Minister is really going to have to prioritise, but is it a poison chalice? A poison chalice? I mean, I, um, I wouldn't describe it quite like that. I mean, I think Britain's um, economic difficulties are deep-seated and they, uh, you know, they've been around for, um, let's say, the last 50 years, uh, if not longer. And so, you know, whatever administration or whatever political hue has to deal with them, I mean, the ongoing uh, poor investment levels, the poor productivity levels, et cetera, et cetera. And also the migration from a world of tangible investment to intangible investment. This is a world in which kind of knowledge, intellectual capital and patents, copyrights is much more important than actually kind of producing uh, things in, in, in factories. So, you know, they, this is huge stuff. And I have to say that I, I find the kind of discourse um, from the Conservative leaders very, very kind of weak on this. And I, I think that um, one of the reasons why there's going to be a recession is, of course, um, the need to contain inflation by raising interest rates. Um, um, that's one. And the squeeze on real incomes caused by the sharp rise energy prices. And that's facing everybody. And I think there's going to be a global kind of setback. That's obvious. And it's going to be more acute in the UK. One reason it's going to be more acute in the UK is because you know, uh, our exports to our main market, um, Europe, uh, are down so much and unlikely to recover very much. 
uh, because we're not in the single market of the customs union. And so, you know, you start with a ball and chain around your feet, even, you know, trying to kind of resuscitate this economy of ours. I think it needs a kind of major mobilization around leveling up, a major mobilization around net zero. It means a major um, investment in science and coming out of the EU's Horizon program as the price for uh, not abiding by a treaty in Northern Ireland that we signed, um, which is the EU's kind of way of saying, if you're not going to abide by the treaty, you can't do the Horizon program. All these things, you start so many kind of yards behind where you need to start, meters behind where you need to start. And then, you know, the things that the government are saying they're going to do are going to make matters worse, not better. I mean, I, and I really fear for um, a, continuing, a, t- a continuing slide in sterling. I really fear for a, a rise in interest rates to 4% or higher um, with this inflation rate and with to try and arrest the fall in sterling. I, I, I think the, the knock-on effect on residential house prices in Britain could be very acute. There's, there's talk about it, house prices could fall by 30% in the next two or three years. All these things are going to make British consumers less confident, less willing to spend and intensify the recessionary forces. So let's talk about a policy framework, one that you think will is missing. You know, Emilio, if you were to have the ear of the next prime minister, you know, should you would you say you've got to focus on taxes, you've got to focus on productivity, you've got to focus on growth? And, and which policies might be the best way to stoke that growth? I think if I did, if had the ear of the of the prime minister, um, what I'd be looking to to talk about is re, reworking Britain's role in in the European um, mainframe, and of course that starts with NATO. But the European Union has a variety of opportunities there that I wouldn't want Britain simply because it's a Brexity issue, you know, to instinctively ignore. Yeah. Um, so permanent enhanced uh, security cooperation or PESCO, affectionately, is is a great opportunity where uh, various um, ops-based or um, crisis-based groups are put together. Um, from a voluntaristic perspective in the European Union that where you do not need to be a, a member state. And I think on the basis of um, the, the prolific leadership that, that Britain has already shown in this area, this to me is an excellent opportunity to, to rework. It's not rejoining, it's sort of realigning. And there's there's a very sympathetic method by which Britain can set, set itself up in, in a helpful, very, very effective, quite a material way. Um, interestingly, I think what, what uh, French President Macron came up with uh, not so long ago, the idea of a political community, and the idea of a sort of uh, a widening neighborhood in which Britain can still, you know, feel comfortable, still play a part. Uh, this vision, I think, is uh, typically uh, ambiguous. I think the more ambiguous it is, in a sense, the more attractive it is because you don't have the details. But um, I, th- I think it, it might be an area where Britain can look to find friends, to find re-engagement, to find um, strategic uh, partnerships that, that make sense post, post-Brexit. Um, I think also the idea of, of, of thinking about Europe um, as, as, a, as, a, as a new neighbourhood, if you like. Um, certainly, I think that we've seen good commitment and support in terms of promoting a huge amount of support with regards to, to Ukraine. But I mean, thinking about how to rebuild Ukraine um, and post-conflict uh, solutions uh, and, and rebuilding requirements are going to be absolutely really, really high on, on the European foreign policy list. Where is Britain going to be, I think, in terms of those decisions? That itself requires Britain to be you know, really quite mobile and intelligent yeah. about where it wants to be. Um, so I would certainly advocate uh, a collective and very creative approach to re-Europeanizing core elements, I think, of Britain's security and, and, and defence um, architecture. 
Well, Britain's mm. going to need to make new friends and international deal-making. It might, of course, include a peace deal with Ukraine. Now, Boris Johnson has been singled out by President Zelensky as, um, you know, for special praise. I mean, they've even named a road after him um, in, in Odessa. There have been generous spending commitments to help. Um, do you expect more of the same from the next Prime Minister? Undoubtedly, and I think the, I mean, this is this is cross-party, and I mean, though, although Johnson was um, kind of the, the, you know, the most prominent of the government, uh, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace were uh, scarce less enthusiastic, and I think both of them will be in the next cabinet. And indeed, you know, I think the Labour Party, Keir Starmer and and David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, and uh, John Healy, the Shadow Defence Secretary, have also kind of been very strong on this question. I don't think that, um, I mean, Britain's commitment to NATO is very, very substantial. It's second only to the United States. Uh, and I think that they, we will continue to give as much support as we possibly can to the Ukrainian military. So I think that that is a kind of sine qua non. I mean, international observers should not question that. Coming up on a future agenda, the menace of microplastics. What can the world do to clean up the five trillion pieces of debris discarded in our oceans? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.